Welcome to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor Hutcherson, joined by my co-host, Andy Collins. Andy, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Doing pretty good. Um, just getting ready for Christmas time. We're back again recording a podcast. Very excited to be doing that. We took a little bit of a break, but um, you know, we decided we needed to do this again because we we're having so much fun doing it, and the, the listeners, you know, demanded it. Um, nearly 100% of our listeners asked us to do another podcast, so we had to uh, oblige. Yeah, well, it was easily three out of four, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, so yeah, just, um, you know, normal work schedule stuff, just, uh, kind of entering the slow time of the year. Everyone's taking vacations at different times. So it's kind of hard to really get projects, uh, done, but making as much progress as possible. So what about yourself? How's work going? Oh, work's pretty good. Um, some time ago we did a show where, we talked about Java a little bit and what I was trying to learn a little Java. So uh, that was actually, I was trying to learn Java in uh, preparation for teaching a, a course uh, that is going to be partly focused in Java. So I've kind of been working on that for uh, quite a while now. And we're not going to launch it until next year, but um, I guess, you know, it's Christmas time now, but it'll be like well into next year before we finally launch it. But really plenty plenty of things to learn um quite a bit Mm -hmm. of stuff there and so that's kind of exciting you know technology and actually some new um lms system a learning management system i guess this lms system is like atm machine but learning management (laughs) system um called canvas which is a really popular giant rails monolith that uh, is open source and when I looked at the code for a little while, I decided we definitely need to have pay somebody to host it for us. Um, <laughs> I mean, it seems to work really well. It's actually quite popular. It's used by a lot of universities and uh, and you know secondary primary schools across the country. But uh, it's it's one of those uh, it ain't broke, so let's just leave it and not touch it kind of deals. I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using that and you know learning uh, a lot of AWS stuff. Um, just actually quite quite a lot going on. Yeah. It, it, you're a far cry from the uh, C-sharp.net Microsoft purists that uh, you were when I met you. Um, yeah, I think you're thinking of someone else. <laughs> it was very, um, you're very adamant, you know, only one technology, one technology mm-hmm. ruled them all. You know, I did and have. Now you're just a completely different person. I did have a, a brief window of time very early in my career when I thought that uh, Perl was the only way. <laughs> right. Stop all other languages. We don't need them. We don't need we don't them. Need just them. let's improve this. Uh, it can do whatever you need to do. So why why use something different? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And it was, you know, it was, it's kind of funny in those days. I, very, I remember this and I've had, you know, conversations in the years since, like people who really just love Perl will always tell you that you can write readable Perl, you know, mm. and you can, but like it's, e- it's, it's easier not to. <laughs> so, yeah. Out. Um, well, I think we're going to come back to Java a little bit later in the podcast. We'll definitely want to talk about Log4j, the Log4Shell vulnerability. Um, but let's table that for, uh, let's bury the lead for a little bit. 
And I want to ask you a, a philosophical question that my wife asked me last night, and I, I kind of struggled with it. And I just want to see what your response is. Um, so she asked me, what is a cardinal rule of programming? And I had to think for a little bit. And then I asked like the question, well, what do you mean by cardinal rule? You know, because I started to come up with a bunch of different types of answers. Um, so without like clarifying it anymore, what, what's sort of your response to that question? Well, I had, I had your same response, I guess, to your wife. Like, what does that mean to you, to her, uh, cardinal rule? Mm -hmm. Well, she was just trying to start a conversation. It turns out. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, deep meaning behind that. It was just when, um, someone's, programming something, sitting down at the computer to code something kind of what is a, is a, a guideline or, or what is something that they think of that helps them no matter what the kind of problem that they're working on is. Let's say that's the definition of what, what she was asking. Okay. So, I mean, I think there are like, you know, at a, at a level of like a rule being like a law, something you can't violate. I would say something really kind of probably not very helpful and that you, your code needs to work, right? It needs mm -hmm. to do the thing that you meant for it to do. Like if you, if you're tasked with, um, you know, sorting a list and instead you, you know, write some code to launch a bunch of missiles or something, that's not, that's <laughs> not helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think that's a terribly interesting answer to that question. So I guess I would say like rule in the sense that this is a super good idea. Uh, mm -hmm. And the one of the first things that comes to my mind is the, the idea of, of being, you know, tight iterations, you know, of development mm -hmm. of the process. And I think that, you know, we see that in software development. We see that in kind of the whole like scrum world or various methodologies or uh, project management methodologies, that sort of thing. The value of that at different levels of just doing as little as you can get away with before you verify that what you did makes sense. Yeah. I, I took it or I kind of went a little bit of a different route at first. I was sort of, I gave a very pessimistic answer and my answer was there's nothing new under the sun. Like your problem isn't unique. This has been done before and there are other existing pre-existing solutions possible even in the standard library of the, the programming languages you're working with that, that will um, do this for you or, or something, you know, you'll, you can compose of the, those things together to get it done. So that was my sort of pessimistic answer. Um, but I didn't like it. It wasn't very satisfying to me. So I thought about it for, for a little bit longer and I came up with, I didn't come up with, but I thought of, um, human time is more valuable than machine time. I'm not really sure that that kind of qualifies as a cardinal rule or it's kind of like an maybe axiom. the question is vague enough. Is that an axiom? Yeah. Or yeah. Like just a truth. Yeah. yeah. So, something like that. Um, that. That's what I think about a lot, um, especially now that I'm a little bit further along in my career. I, I see that, right? Like let's value, let's at least try to value human time more than machine time. I mean, well, I, anyway. I would agree that that, um, is mostly the case, right? You know, there are yeah. certainly 
you know, in the line of business app, it's probably almost always the case. Um, right. It, yeah. I was refuting my, myself like, well, if you're a, you know, a real time operating system or you're running, you know, some software on an airplane, let's probably, let's value machine time. You know, let's, value, you know, there, there's probably, um, a, a lot of cases where machine time is very important. Yeah. I mean, if you're building an operating system, then you, it's, you should put in more effort to make it faster and make, and, you know, you should do that. Mm -hmm. If you're building a programming language, you should do that. Or, you know, if building a microcontroller code, writing for a microcontroller or something, or maybe, mm -hmm. maybe not even that actually, that probably is situational too. There's probably a lot you can get away with these days on that too. Um, but if you're writing, you know, a game that's bleeding edge and trying to push every bit you can get out of uh, whatever, you know, console you're writing for, that kind of thing, too. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. So my answer maybe is more centered around the kind of day to day work I'm doing, the line of business stuff that, that I'm doing. And your answer maybe feels more at a, at a, a higher or, or lower, lower level, I guess, of broadly applicable, you know, if you're doing embedded systems or something like that, you know, you, you want it to work or your, your solution should work. Um, I really like, I've, you know, the whole bit about being iterative, you know, I try to take that lesson in my own, you know, outside of programming too, and take that kind of to the rest of my life. Just like, just kind of do as little as you can get away with before you can validate it and just check on it. Just keep, keep an eye. Um, I'm, I'm somebody who really hates to plan, um, as my wife will tell you. And like, so that really has saved me when I sort of learned that kind of iterative philosophy. I'm like, oh, this is great. This means I don't have to really plan that much because like, as soon as I go off track, I'll know it, you know? So I, maybe, I, maybe that's not really the lesson I was supposed to learn, but, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of one of the things that's helped me out a lot. Uh, and I think related to that, so so iterations are sort of smaller units of time. You know, sort of a corollary to that maybe is like, you know, you should build software components that are small, you know, components being like, like functions or blocks of code or classes or whatever, modules, whatever you're dealing with, like to keep those as small and sort of easy to verify and easy to validate either by testing or just looking at them. You know, mm -hmm. I see, it yeah. seems like a, an analogous sort of thing to me, the, the short iterations and like the idea of small functions or small units of code. Yeah. The, take the problem and decompose it is, you know, to the appropriate level. I guess, you know, you don't want to decompose it infinitely small, um, but you need to decompose the problem and then, yeah, iteratively work on the solution. I can see that being good guidance uh, for all programmers. I think your point there about how, you know, you sort of implied that you can go too small. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think that some people, you know, there's disagreements about what's too small. What is that? Is it Uncle Bob's rule? I might, I might be making this up. They're like four lines for a method is the end, is, is, is the limit or something like that. I've heard that term, that, that sort of number before. I don't know if I've heard that. Maybe it wasn't Uncle Bob. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just making stuff up. But I have heard, I've definitely heard people say like four lines and I'm like, that's no, that that's a weird rule. I don't think I don't care for that rule. Um, yeah, that seems arbitrary. Yeah, it's very I think it's very arbitrary. And um, and I, I've seen, you know, I mean, I'm going to say this. I uh, 
you know, I, I've been in this world, in this business for a long time. I own a copy of Clean Code, the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have read some of it. Uh, and I was a little bit, you know, I really do kind of feel like this, some of the examples in there were the methods were a little bit too small for me. I'll be honest. Like I kind of, you know, you, you want to write this coding and, and give it a name, right? So you want to give it a name. So you put it in a method, but I don't know. There's yeah. The, the class just explodes and it comes hard to like keep up everything. And if you're only ever using this one time, you know, maybe it's okay to stick this single line of code just right there in line instead of calling another method or something like that. Anyway, yeah. I'm just going to, you know, if we received mail, I'm sure I'd get plenty of hate mail on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to, to think of some other rules, like don't try to outsmart the compiler, right? Don't try to trick it into doing certain things or, um, it's going to inline the appropriate stuff for you. Don't try to, to inline stuff yourself. Uh, make it like I kind of goes back to human time is, is more valuable than machine time. It's like make it easier for humans to read, make it easier for humans to operate and edit the code and let the compiler worry about making it fast and, and efficient. Well, I think I would kind of extrapolate from what you're saying there to a little bit broader, which is don't be clever. <laughs> yes. I hate clever people. They're the worst. Um, I'll, I can handle clever compilers, but, uh, clever people. Mm. Well, that's an example of where, you know, like we want to sort of hide away all that concern. Like we, as an industry, we hide the kind of the mess of like thinking about performance, thinking about clever solutions. We hide that behind a compiler so that most programs don't have to con- worry about it. You know, mm. every program actually is taking advantage of that sort of cleverness and that speed or whatever. But your the goal should be like that the the ever average day to day programmer shouldn't have to care about that. You know, they get to stand mm-hmm. on the shoulders mm-hmm. of giants and all that stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I think another rule that's coming to mind is you know name things well. Name, be, be kind to people that are coming after you name things well, because you never know when it's going to be you that's trying to read and understand this code years later. Um, something like that. There are no temporary solutions, right? Yeah. That's uh, one thing. Right things there. just get baked in. You say you're going to do something that's temporary and there's nothing more, more permanent than something with a comment that says slash slash, you know, this is temporary. They're just, scattered fix me comments throughout all the code yep. or whatever. I, I mean, I've certainly written a handful of fix me comp. Maybe a, maybe a handful is the wrong unit of measure. I've written a, a portion of, uh, of fix me comments and done that very same thing. Um, yeah. May, yep, maybe I just, that's a, I did that today. <laughs> did you? I did that today. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you do it. But, you know, you try to, it's, it, you know, it's again, maybe a, this word rule, isn't it? Right. It's, um, there are, like you said, guidelines earlier, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and that, yeah, I think that's the, the overall point that I've felt like I've come to thinking about this question for a day now is like, there are no strict laws or, you know, if you, if you're using the word rule in the sense of like a law that should not be broken, um, I, I would maybe the only rule is like your solution should work, but that's even a guideline too, right? Like sometimes you want to make a solution that doesn't work. 
for some reason that that could be applicable yeah, well, really as well about that i mean for like testing purposes or for if you're trying to like well then i, I guess meet your goal then the then it works, solution right? yeah then it works I mean, right the only way, maybe job security there you go if you want to <laughs> maybe it just yeah. breaks every third wednesday and you have you got to go tweak it or whatever yeah. yeah but then i guess then it would be meeting your goal as well so um yeah, but I don't know if there are any ironclad laws. It, it depends on the situation. Yeah, we should look to other engineering professions and see what they what they say. What are some ironclad laws of, of their profession? Like doctors say, do no harm. You know, I mean, I think, I think you know a, the code. The code should work. That's ours. The code should, should work. work. And working is broad. Harm is broad. <laughs> you know, working means yeah. like. It should solve the problem before the heat death of the universe. You know, it mm-hmm. should, you know, not crash the machine, like even randomly, you know, it shouldn't use up all the memory that you have, you know, there, you know, there are different ways to sort of think about it. Like maybe there's another word for it, it works, but something like that. I think mm-hmm. that's right. It should, you know, it shouldn't like do the job and also, you know, install a keylogger on the, on the user's <laughs> machine. It should just do the job. It shouldn't do the second yeah. part. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, Java, Log4j. Uh, we don't need to do or probably shouldn't and couldn't do an explainer of what the Log4j vulnerability is, but it is pretty well known. I'd say that if you're listening to this podcast, you have at least heard of this vulnerability, um, what they're calling Log4shell I think is the the term that I've seen used the most. Um, Yeah. So we we probably can't get too deep into how it works, just that it is bad. It is uh, bad because of what you can do with it and also how easy it is to exploit it. You really don't need much at all to be able to exploit this. Um, You don't need complicated setups. You don't need to um, do any really social engineering. You can just kind of uh, find a server that is vulnerable. And, and that's very easy right there because log4j runs on a lot of servers around the world. And this vulnerability has been in existence for a long time, I believe since 2013, um, possibly. I think, so, that, I think log- that's right. I thought it, 2013, 2014, something like that. Yeah. Some, yeah, somewhere in there, um, many years. So there's lots of servers out there. And as we all know, some servers get patched and a lot don't. When something gets deployed, sometimes it runs because um, it's it's doing its job and and that makes people happy and they don't care, right? And, uh, to to patch it. So I presume this vulnerability will be in the wild for a long time to come. Um, so is that kind of also your assessment, Andy? Do you have any anything to add about kind of the setup of what Log4j is? Being being a Java expert now, uh, yes, of course, in my in my expertise, um, I uh, I just really I read this whole thing about calling it log for shell, and I just can't get past that right <laughs> now. I re- I said there was some post I read, you know, when, when all this first came out, which at this point was like a little over a week or two weeks ago. Is that right? The 10th, I think, December 10th is. uh, So we're recording this on the 22nd of December. I believe, yeah, about 12 days ago is when I started seeing the the news. So um, I read the post, and I guess there was some other vulnerability with the official name was something about Log4J. I don't 
I don't understand log for a show. Am I supposed to understand what that means? I think it just means um, like you would get a shell. You would have a root access or, you know, some administrator access. I see. And so you'd have like a shell in the sense of like you could then issue whatever commands you you would want. So I mean, it is the, and the, the vulnerability is, like you said, not to get too deeply into it, but it, it does allow sort of like arbitrary remote or arbitrary code execution. So the attacker can just inject essentially Java objects into your code and just run them. Mm -hmm. Do whatever they want at that point. So once you're right. in the JVM, you can do anything you want, of course. Well, you have whatever access the machine, whatever access the you know the the program, the Java program has. Right, and I would presume if you're like attacking, uh, you know, an Apache server, it's probably going to have pretty, pretty broad access, pretty good um, elevated permissions. Well, that's one of those things. It depends. It's been a long time since I set up Apache. Um, and I, I do understand that, like, a specifically Apache web servers are vulnerable as some part of their logging, I guess. Um, but it, Apache, the way you're supposed to set up Apache is you give it a pretty unprivileged user. Um, <laughs> but I don't think it, it comes out of the box that way. It is, at least it didn't used to. So it's one of those sort of deals. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it's, uh, I would say that. The vulnerability itself is actually is pretty scary, you know, just this specific one. Um, it's also kind of interesting that, you know, I actually visited with a little bit of family on Saturday and saw some people for the first time in a couple of years, given all this COVID business that we've been going through, um, been pretty locked down. But I saw some people I hadn't seen in a long time, and one of those people was my brother. And one of his first questions to me was like, so what's this log for j thing I heard about? And he's not a programmer at all. He's a machinist, and he just saw it on the news or whatever. Uh, mm. And so it was, you know, it, it, it is sort of one of those things that, that I think the, the hype about how bad it is is probably accurate. And But it was well publicized, mm. even Hey, yeah, I think that there's a lot of interesting angles to that, too. Like these things, I think it is the, the security research researchers I follow say it really is potentially the, the worst vulnerability of all time, not because of how what you can do when you exploit it, but just how easy it is to exploit. Um, yeah, it, it has the it so. has that both kind of like perfect storm of. It's easy to use that anybody can use it and you can do anything you want or not anything you want. Right. You can do, you know, you, you can easily own the machine or, or own right. that node in the network and now you're in the network and all that stuff too, right? And just how many um, machines are vulnerable, right? The, the perfect storm of like easy to exploit, you can do a lot with it and it's everywhere. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> point. So, yeah, that's... So, yeah, I find that interesting. But but another angle is like, oh, OK, is is it because this is so bad that news media is covering it? Or is this just um, the coding world's culture or whatever you know, bleeding into mainstream media? Um, maybe it was a slow news day and they needed something to talk about. Or, I don't know. Is, is it just more people care about this as computers sort of infiltrate our lives? Well, I think, you know, I think people who follow, you know, the stock market and care about that sort of thing, you know, do actually notice that, you know, they notice when these when giant vulnerabilities like this are going to affect, you know, the prices of things. Right. right. And as yep. soon as any time, 
anytime money's involved, the media is going to come running. It's going to affect lots of people's lives. I mean, well, we've seen a lot of stories over the last you know couple of years of ransomware attacks. You know, taking off certain. Um, plants i saw um most recently that cream cheese for all of our bagels was affected because the number two supplier of cream cheese in the united states had a ransomware attack and their facilities were were shut down or hampered for a while is that right i didn't i didn't know why i did know that we 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 ran low on cream cheese around this house (laughs) yeah (laughs) I, 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 i i made a comment about that uh, when I went shopping, I was like, where's all the cream cheese? I can't find, you know, any, <laughs> any of the cream cheese that I want. And then a few weeks later, I read about that and kind of made sense. So interesting. Um, but yeah, I think just it, I see it covered more and more in the news, uh, computer related issues. But but you're right. Like these things are starting to have massive multi-billion dollar impacts on the global economy. And um, that matters, you know, people, people that like making money. That matters to them, so that that's why it's probably in the news because they want to hear about it. And I mean, to your, I mean, it's really the same thing as what your point earlier was that, or your what you asked is, do, do computers just matter that much more? And yes, I mean that's, you know, the, you know, the stock market wouldn't care so much if they didn't matter that much more. Like mm-hmm. if it didn't actually directly affect a company's bottom line, then they wouldn't care. And you know. That, so it matters. It matters a lot. The things that we do and the things that we build, um, they affect people. They affect the entire world. They affect people's lives day to day. Not just financially, but but financial yeah. is part of it. Right. Um, well, what are we going to do about it, I guess, is where I'd like to take the conversation. What, what as programmers, should we be doing um, – for application security, you know, how, how did this log4j vulnerability make its way in, uh, you know, to the code base and go unseen for so long? I think a, a lot of um, kind of the, the blogs that I've seen talk about the open source side of this have, have mentioned that log4j is um, maintained by like three or four people that do it part-time that's not their full-time job and there's a lot of open source software that's like that and log4j just happens to be used a lot in in a lot of different products it seems to be the default logger for java applications and i just feel like that's a problem That, that that is our model that we have that we so highly depend on open source software pay little to nothing to these maintainers and then just hope that the software continues to get maintained. And so it's kind of this dark side. I've been a huge proponent and lover of open source software uh, for a long time. And I've always cherished what um, the community that's around it and the, the ability to get software that, that uh, helps me in my job and helps me in my hobbies and all that stuff but there's a dark side to it and it feels like it's kind of coming into scope a little bit more clearly for me now. How do you feel about the situation? Yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think of sort of an analogy to the real world and failing. I mean, one thing that comes to my mind is that a logging library, you know, it feels like one of those sort of tools 
unlike a lot of software, it feels like a logging library has the hope of being finished one day. You know, like at some point it does all the things it ever needed to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so the reason I say that is because, you know, I wonder, you know, is there, is there some kind of market for logging libraries? Like, what does that mean? Is that, is it, is, I mean, it's the kind of tool that, like, I guess they could, you know, you could imagine making a commercial and certainly there do exist commercial products and you sell that license or, like, but you're not really continuing to develop it maybe. I mean, it probably doesn't, mm. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much time it takes in, the, in these people's world to, to, to work on Log4J. Um, certainly they've been busy recently, but I don't know. Um, I don't know what that means. Like it's just, it's a, it's an integral, important foundational tool, but it's also, you know, not one that I would anticipate needing a ton of work all the time. Yeah, that's a great point. I'd say I really don't know the answer to this, but I have the same speculation that you do, which is what active development, what new features are coming to a logging library? I mean, maybe with the advent of like people are going to um, are moving away from on-prem servers where they would log to a, a file system. Maybe there's different types of sort of targets or something in a cloud world. Maybe you would want to pump it into like database and those sort of drivers and and whatnot need kind of constant updates or whatever. But ultimately, yeah, like what active work is is really going on. So maybe part time maintainers doesn't sound as scary as it actually is, because, yeah, the work is so little that part time is the right amount of of, um, development that it that it needs. And I would think I mean, this is really particular, maybe to logging, but in the world where you're migrating to the cloud, I think the right solution is not to use Log4J. You should probably be using, you know, the tools that are provided by the cloud provider because you're going to get distributed logging. You're going to be able to kind of follow the, the follow the bouncing ball through the whole process of whatever microservices or whatever services you're running. You know, I think I don't know that like modifying Log4J or some kind of more traditional logging framework is the right thing to do. You should probably just swap it out. It becomes obsolete after a while. Um, but that being, you know, so maybe some tools are different than that. But I do think that um, I do think that the the major the big companies, even if it's not like a a license, even if it's not, we're going to continue to pay this group of people indefinitely to use their software. Like it it does seem right that they get something for it. You know, mm-hmm. it does seem right that there's some like financial motivation to maybe do reviews of the co- of the code for security issues or or do like, you know, I don't I don't know, build a test suite around it. I, I I'm sure there's a test suite around it, but there's probably there is, you know, I'm not saying that they shouldn't get compensated for their, their effort and their work, given that this thing is so popular and so widely used by, you know, billion about like billion dollar companies or billion billions of dollar companies Mm -hmm. um i guess i was just saying like i don't know if the the model of the commercial model of selling a license makes sense i mean i think what we're but what we're asking for is like maybe what we're asking for is for big corporations to act 
you know, honorably. Right. And to say like, oh, well, we use this. It's only right that we give you a little bit of money. And, you know, it's not going to be, certainly not going to break, you know, these companies to do that. Uh, They could do it without really impacting anybody. Nobody, no, you know, nobody, nothing other than like a super thorough examination of their books would even, it wouldn't even register, you know, the kind of money that Mm -hmm. would make a difference to these folks. But I think asking, you know, asking a company to do that seems kind of foolish too. I don't think that anybody's just going to like offer that up. You know, people don't, Mm -hmm. people don't make a lot of money by just offering to give money away. You know, that's just not how it works. And developers, like as a developer, you know, you and I are developers and, you know, I've worked for other companies before. Like, I don't know that there's, there's not a culture. I've never seen a culture of, you know, listening to the development team. Like as the dev team, we could, we could say to the bosses, we could say, we're using this tool they have this avenue. They've set up an avenue for us to donate money to them. Either, maybe it's a foundation. Maybe it's just like, you know, some kind of Venmo address or whatever. I don't know. And mm-hmm. like, here's this thing. We should do that. And I've never, I've never been in a culture where that was like acceptable or like normal at all. Maybe, except, <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't even say it's not acceptable because it just never came up. It just never seemed like a thing right. that could be done. But it's also like the way businesses work. There's no avenue. There's no, I mean, some businesses, the bigger the company, right. the bigger the company, the harder it is to pay for anything, you know? Um, <laughs> exactly. Right. Like it needs to be traced back to like, well, what are they giving us? Well, we can get that for free. Why would we give money for that? Well, I just even um, mean the actual bureaucracy of trying to like cut sure. a check or yeah. whatever, you know? Right. Yeah. When you're a small startup or whatever, and there's five people, you can, it's very easy to have that conversation and say, we should give a thousand dollars to this foundation. Yeah, I, I totally get the bureaucracy thing. Like, what's the process for that? It's such an odd request, right? Like, you're going to have to ask your boss who's going to have to ask someone else to, like, who even handles this? And they go talk to the finance department and they say, well, we've never heard of this. Like, and they just send you around. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that that is a problem. And um, I would love to see some new culture evolve around that. I would love to see the ability to say we should kick this we should calculate how much value we get from this and give um a portion somewhere like a pretty high portion of that value back to the company or the developer or the foundation that released that open source software and yeah i think that needs to happen but there's another piece that i think is even more pressing which is this idea that we get the open source software for free and i think that concept kind of needs to go away yes we get it for free in the sense we can download it and there's no monetary immediate cost but there's this hidden cost that we're that we assume that it's safe like there's this thing that um I think we all recognize is wrong, but we still choose to kind of believe in it, which is like, oh, it's open source. If there's a vulnerability, people are going to see it. Right. Um, well, I mean, and maybe that's true over a long time, but but it sometimes it can be seven years before it's noticed. That's right. right? That's right. It, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's a, it's it's a little bit misleading to say that open source means that everybody will it'll be seen. It's like how in what time frame, how quickly will it be seen? And you know, who will see it first, right? I mean, we say that mm-hmm. this vulnerability existed for seven, eight years or whatever. 
I mean, it existed for a long time. Nobody knew about it. That that's that's flatly ridiculous that nobody knew about it. Yeah. You know. Well, I think we have evidence that people did try to raise this as a concern. Finally, this cons- this one went viral enough for for people to take it seriously. Uh, I believe I there is evidence that people were raising this issue at uh, certain conferences and on certain mailing lists. And it wasn't it was sort of I don't want to say ignored, but um, it didn't rise to the level that we, we have today. I don't I don't mean that. I mean, that is actually a completely separate issue and, and a pretty big deal. But I mean, there are plenty of people who notice these vulnerabilities who are not inclined to let you know about them. You know, they're right, going to take yes. advantage of this vulnerability. Oh yeah. No, I think that's a guarantee that like there, there are certain actors, state actors, just, um, you know, solo hackers that have known about this and have been taking advantage of it. And I wish I knew more about what it looks like to kind of do some, um, assessments. If you've been compromised by this, you know, going back years, it's so ironic. I think that like the thing that we're supposed to do, which is logging to see if we've been compromised is the very vector that, uh, this, this has come through. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the piece I would like to see changed is this idea that we were counting on it being safe to use that. It's like, Oh, this new version just dropped today. I'm going to update my version of Angular or whatever. Um, it was developed, you know, through open source. It surely it's it's safe. There's no there's no way that something could have snuck in there. They're they're doing PRs. They're reviewing all this stuff. Um, and yeah, I just, I just I don't know. We should be we should have a little bit more caution. I feel like. So there is. I'm gonna. I'm going to try my best to pinpoint this. So I just, I had this memory of something that I had heard about and I sort of looked it up just now. And it was a paper, a computer science paper written by a bunch of people uh, for the university, some university in Germany here, the University of Dartsdod. I don't know how to say German words. Um, and it, it was basically talking about how uh, the asking the question, how long do vulnerabilities live in open source code? Mm. And they did. So they did, you know, some measurements, they did some studies and the paper exists. You can kind of find it. The name of the paper is how long do vulnerabilities live in the code, a large scale empirical measurement, uh, study on free and open source software vulnerability lifetimes. So that's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> But I think they were saying the average is about four years. That's what they say wow. in this paper. Um, so four years of it just there, and the only people who know about it are not talking. That's all you know, you know. Right. Um, and they said the open SSL bug was apparently seven years. The one, the heart bleed. I didn't. I've forgotten yeah. it was that long. Wow. So I, I didn't know is, it was that long either. This one is right up there. Um, and there was like a, apparently a terrible bug in Chromium that they don't seem to go into here in this abstract, at least that was around for two years, but um, you know, vulnerability and there, and uh, it makes the point in here that vulnerabilities are getting older all the time as we have more and more software. Mm-hmm. So just saying, just saying the average is four years is just saying the average is four years, you know, now, right now, yeah. Um, Interesting. And so, yeah, well, there's, you know, there, this idea that saw that, that, 
Yeah, yeah. The idea that open source is going to like make everything secure is, you know, pr- you know, maybe you can make some philosophical argument, like given enough time, but in practice, it doesn't. And right, it's just flat out. I think it's 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 a foolish notion to say that it does. Now, that's not an right. argument that says that closed source is more secure, right? It's closed source is, mm-hmm. you know differently insecure you know you maybe you don't get to read the code to find the vulnerabilities but i just say i don't know how many people i don't i literally don't know how many people are out there you know scanning code is their job or whatever to try to figure out you know vulnerabilities versus you know just you know black box testing the software or whatever to find those vulnerabilities which seems like it might be more productive to me um Mm -hmm. And you might, you know, might maybe once you hit on a vulnerability, then you can go read the code and verify it. That seems reasonable. But um, I yeah, just, I don't think we know the answer. I think so much, like so many things, you know, as humans, we don't know what to do about them. So we just sort of like, you know, go have a coffee or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me try to ask you a, a really, Long question. Um, So I don't want to say the definition of open source has changed, but certainly the number of people participating in openly developed or publicly available source code has gone up quite a bit in the last 15 years. Right. The, the rise of thing of GitHub and public repositories uh, like it, the rise of sort of um, web developers, I guess, in general, people that that uh, don't that aren't uh, computer science majors. Right. Just just the number of developers in the world has increased quite a bit. The people putting code out there, developing libraries, putting things on NPM that other people are, de- are depending on has gone up. I mean, that's the kind of place I'm starting with. Do you at least agree with that statement? Oh, sure. Yeah. It feels like, um, and I don't want to be overly negative here. And and there is, there is quite as, I don't want to undermine the democratization of development here, but there is to a certain degree, a, a sort of a cavalier attitude. I feel in our industry currently about these things or just like, yeah, you make a library, it does a thing, something useful for someone, you put it up there. Um, what responsibility do you have to maintain that? What responsibility do you have as the developer to make sure that it works correctly or is not going to be harmful in some way? And then what responsibility do you have? There's a cavalierness on the consumer side of like, oh, this this thing, I don't know, it does sort some sort of string escaping that I need. I don't know why, but I need this library to do this for me. And people are saying it works. I'm just going to use it and I'm not going to read the source. I'm just going to consume it. I don't know. I guess my question is, do you also sense this cavalierness and um, what can we do about it? If you do sense that, I guess I would use a different word. I don't know what the word is than cavalier. I mean, Cavalier sort of sounds to me like, like we, we know what we're doing. We know this and we just sort of flippantly ignore it. Like we, we don't care, like, you know, let the world burn sort of attitude. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's like kind of thoughtlessness 
And it's sort of, mm. it's sort of, maybe it's willful ignorance sometimes, but ge- it's, ge- yeah. but at least it's ignorance, you know, particularly on yeah. the use, the people who use the software. You know, I'm trying, I'm sitting here at my desk or, you know, uh, trying to get something done. My boss is breathing down my neck. Here's this library that does this thing. I'll just use that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have, we, you know, we don't have, any maybe we have policies maybe we don't but at least we don't have any re, any security reason that keeps me from adding this to the code base like i can add this to the code base and maybe there's a pull request maybe there's a review code review or whatever maybe not who knows um but i you know i can just do this i have this power uh and then mm-hmm. on the side of the people who are making things like you know, you, I think it's interesting you said that. So I make a library because I think it solved, maybe it solves my problem and I just want to share it with the world. But then I don't want to maintain it. It's just there, right? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, that I'm sure that happens as a problem sometimes. I'm not, I don't know how much I, I see that. I mean, we have this sort of notion that like, if the code has, if, if I look at GitHub and it hasn't been updated in, you know, a year plus, then I sort of like back away from it, you know, um, and that's just sort of my nature. Maybe, maybe not everybody does that. Maybe that's not even fair. I mean, earlier I said like some, maybe there's some software that you can, that can be finished and never have to be updated and it still works. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I sort of, guess I have that little paranoia that maybe nobody cares about this software. Uh, and then people, so, so maybe that's I, what I'm saying is like, I think people do that. They put stuff on GitHub. They say, do whatever you want with it. And then they don't touch it again. And like over time, people just start to ignore it. I think, you know, it doesn't gain traction that way. But I do think there's a responsibility. You know, there's a responsibility if I create something and and even if I'm if I'm updating, if I'm maintaining it, like I think I have a responsibility to do my best work. You know, to do to do what I can do. Like like we said earlier, the the law of software development, or the the, the cardinal rule is is that it should work. You know, and so mm-hmm. I have, and it, that that means it shouldn't have like giant security holes in it. You know, that means it shouldn't you know use up all the memory on the machine and all that stuff. Well, ideally, but you could still make something work and then leave a bunch of flaws in it. I feel like there, there well, there's certainly. other. I mean, that's going to happen. Rules, I guess. I mean, I, yeah. it's going to happen. That and obviously that's how bugs work. Like people don't most most people don't put bugs in code on purpose. You know, sometimes people release code with known bugs, but they didn't put them there on purpose. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it means it's my responsibility to to fix those things once they come up. I don't mean that to produce perfect code, but to like, to keep an eye on it and to think about yeah. those things, to think about security, you know, I think the most common scenario is going to be people putting up code, um, you know, putting some package on NPM or something like that. And then it gets no traction. Maybe, you know, the bots are downloading it or whatever the bots do, but, but no one's actually doing it. That's probably going to be the bulk of those things. And then there's going to be the packages that are super popular that have the foundations or the regular contributors that they get, um, you know, regular maintenance. They get, those are going to be, um, a big chunk of it, but there's also these other projects that have one maintainer and are very popular, but for, but the person loses interest or maybe they, they pass away or something, you know, that there's just that risk. And, and I think that's definitely an evaluation I do when I'm looking at, at open source software to say, is this just one guy 
is this just one person and what's the backup? What happens if they go away? Um, and that on, even if it's a very useful library that I think is in good shape and all that, that kind of scares me away from, um, from consuming it. Well, I think it, I think it probably should. I think that's reasonable. Um, of course, what you, you keep mentioning NPM, I think that's sort of an order of magnitude or maybe two more than, than other sort of per, uh, language communities or language worlds. Because, uh, you know, you might say that about the pack. Maybe you decide that the package is worth looking at, but now there are these 1,500 other ones that are, that are there with it. Mm-hmm. And surely at least a few of those fall into the category of something you'd be suspicious of. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm not sure what can be done, but I, I feel like, I mean, I, I agree. Um, you know, maybe Cavalier is not the right word um, on the consumer side. I, I still feel like it might be a little bit on the, the producer side, but the consumer, maybe willful ignorance is the, the better term to use. And I think we need to recognize that as an industry and say, hey, we should be aware that these things can happen and we should think a little bit more. I think the, the flip side of this is, you know, what's the, um, the expression or the term where you, you only use stuff, you know, and that you make. Not invented here syndrome. Not invented here syndrome. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that, that it can go too far that way as well. Right. Like, well, we just won't use anything. I mean, I, I don't see foresee people wanting to invent their own programming languages, uh, but that certainly happens too. It has happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't foresee that being a super popular path, but maybe for these mega corporations, um, that they would do that. But that seems like the other end of the spectrum, right? You just absolutely, you don't use anything. And maybe in certain scenarios that makes sense. Maybe you're even producing your own hardware because you don't trust the hardware manufacturers. There probably are some use cases like military use cases for that kind of stuff. But for the line of business developers like myself, I think we need to be educating ourselves about what, um, what we are including um, you know, what's at the surface level is being included. And then what are those things including, right? Because sometimes packages have dependencies of their own and you don't really understand the full dependency graph. And so I think, uh, we should spend more time as part of, you know, we write unit tests, we, um, do tasking exercises. We should have explicit application security review. And I know a lot of people do that, but I don't think it's as, as common as it should be. Man, I don't, I mean, I, I agree with you. I hear people say this sort of thing a lot. I just, I don't know how you do it practically. I mean, so a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the sort of package maintainers or whatever, not package maintainer, like a uh, package management systems. So NPM is, you know, that canonical example. I think a lot of those are those organizations are taking it upon themselves to try to do that analysis, that vulnerability analysis. And I think that's the only place it can be done, really. Like it's not every individual company is just, just hopeless, I think, for everybody to to be doing this degree, you know, to, to do enough due diligence for it to actually be worth it. That's the thing I sort of worry about sometimes. I mean, we, you know, we, it's easy to say like, well, we should look at the code that you put in that you include in your, in your, uh, in your application, but it's, it's hard to do in practice. And I, 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 I guess, 
I guess I have actually leaned a little bit more into the maybe we should be writing more of our own code, even if it is duplicating some of the behavior of some other library. Um, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't think that companies should make their own languages necessarily. I don't think that companies should be writing their own like encryption libraries or whatever. Hopefully your language provides you with things like that. So you don't have to go out into the world to get that sort of thing. There are certain things that, that most developers are just not qualified to do, but there's a lot of things that a developer, most developers could do, but they don't do it because it already exists. And we have this value of like not reinventing the wheel. Right. Well, I mean, it's part of, I feel like that we're told not to do that. I feel like, um, if there's a popular library, you're, you're, or you're hitting some problem. The first thing you should do is, is go out and Google it and see how other people have solved it. And, and if you find the stack overflow, it says, Hey, um, you know, sometimes you find ones that say here, here's the method right here. And what a lot of people do is they'll just copy that method. Maybe they'll rename it, rename the parameters or something like that, but there they're copying code. And that's sort of a form of this. Or sometimes you'll see something like, Hey, this library does this just, uh, you know, include this and, and now call this method. Um, it might be safer that, I, to I, just I, copy the code from stack overflow and <laughs> just blindly trust the link to this library. <laughs> At least you can po- yeah. have hopefully, you know, possibly read the code that you can copy on from stack overflow. <laughs> Right. I'm not, I'm not advocating know. that that's a good idea. I'm just just blindly copying it, but I don't know. I but uh, either way, I mean, I agree. Yeah, don't don't click the link. Do find the name of the library. Go search for it yourself. But um, I feel like that there's emphasis on 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 doing that. On saying, has this been solved before? Yes, it probably has. And then, what did they do to do it? Um, but the the last part of that is, and then. Can you implement that yourself? I feel like there's just a lot of blind trust in this code that, that we get off of, you know, off online today. So, well, the good thing about open source is that you could take, find this library that does the thing and then go read that code mm-hmm. and then steal from it. You know, right. uh, you have to, you have to be aware of the actual license. I'm going to say that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, um, First steal from the license. First <laughs> you know, re- if the yeah. license allows, then just you know take it or take the ideas i mean things get really super gray i guess but you you can borrow the ideas from from it and that sort of thing and i think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do frankly i think that might be a good way to become a better software developer too if you're you know sort of like being inspired by this code to, to solve the problem yourself um that being said it's going to take you longer to build to you know to do this user story or whatever that you're working on or this ticket, you know, it's going to take longer than it would have if you had just, you know, installed that package and called the method or called the function on it. And so you have to, if if, like a team that made that transition, you know, mid project is going to slow down. Right. I don't, you're going to have to make that case. You have to make the case to, to your business and say like, well, this exists over here, but, there's, you know, we're, we've sort of shifted our thinking about like just blindly taking in, you know, dependencies and bottle and make you have to make a case for that sort of thing. And I don't know that that case would always go over. It might be worth trying, um, but it would be it's a tough sell, I think. And, you know, it's tough, too, for particularly if you're a, a younger, not younger, but a more junior programmer. Um 
you know, you might, it would be a real stretch maybe to, to reinvent some of these things instead of just use it. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it feels like we've kind of, sometimes it feels like we sort of paint ourselves into a corner and now like, I don't know what we do. We wait for the paint to dry, I guess. I don't know how that metaphor resolves itself, but, um, like I, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hard situation to get out of without some drastic change. And it seems like it's hard to figure out how to get a handle on how, where to start making that change. So I'm just saying, let's just turn off all the computers. Okay. Turn them off. Just leave them off. Yes. Leave them off for a while. You know, uh, just go back to nature. Right probably would quickly become the sort of Hobbesian state of nature. And then we would get, we would, it would be constant war. And then we turn the computers back on and say like, maybe that was better. I don't know. I don't really have a plan here. I think they'll resent being, being off the computers at the clock. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll know what we tried to do. That's when the machine war starts. That's it right there. You're right. That's when the code butlers go to code um, warriors. Code warriors <laughs> coming yeah. at you. So, well, yeah, I agree. I don't know what to do. I think the first thing that you know that we are doing that I'm doing is just um, inventory, right? Like being knowing what is at least in the in the stack, and I ultimately I think you're right. Like you have to do this at such a scale that only a Microsoft through GitHub or NPM or some of these security scanning things that have access to just mountains of code are able to do. And so I think we have to learn to rely on those tools. Um, we need more tooling. And I mean, if that existed, if we lived in a world where we felt confident that a majority of these vulnerabilities are, are not going to last very long, then that's where open source comes back to being like much better than closed source, right? Once you have those tools that can do that analysis, having the source code mm -hmm. is how you do the analysis. Right. So, yeah, do the analysis before. I think we need more analysis, you know, prior in the, the PR stage of, of things, right? Like let's analyze the code before it gets introduced to the, the main branch. Um, and maybe that that we'll see a little bit more of that over the next few years. And people um, do. Right. There, I mean, there there are you know there are companies out there that are doing a, a pretty good job of that sort of thing. I think, and and you can build that sort of thing into CI CD pipelines or whatever um, to do various sort of analysis of like known vulnerabilities and that kind of thing. But it is it is not. I don't think it's it's super mainstream. Um, so I would encourage folks to look into to doing that sort of thing in, in your world. And at the very least, you know, the very least you can do is if you install a package in your, you know, whatever language you're using and you see that message that says so many vulnerabilities, like you don't just ignore it. That's probably the first thing <laughs> right. to do. Yeah. Just go say, oh, maybe I should figure this out. Or why is this happening? And I think because you, you said earlier, you asked the question about, you know, responsibility. And even if it does take longer, even if it means that we're going to not make our sprint commitment or whatever, things are going to slow down. Like it is the responsibility of every software developer to like do their best. 
to try to make the code do the thing to, that it's supposed to do to make it work. I agree. I feel like this is a good place to, to end the conversation today. Um, a lot to think about. I think we should probably do another a follow-up uh, podcast on mentality shifts and uh, you know not just with security but other concerns as well sounds good all right andy good talking with you talk to you soon all right taylor later